in Scripture about what it looks like not only to follow Christ, but what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit indwelling within you and empowering you in life. I am convinced this is becoming an absent factor in churches all over the world where we have taken church and we have made it about events, we've made it about cool music, we've made it about super cool, awesomely dressed pastors that get up and their words are like, honey, I'm not really, but you know what I mean. But we make it about all these things that at the end of the day, if we don't have this component solidly, foundationally a part of our lives, we are not experiencing the work of Christ in our lives. We are not the church. There are a lot of things we can do that look like the church, but if this is not happening in our lives, then we are not the church. And I've, I've somewhat prefaced uh, this series by saying this is going to begin a process that I'm going to be going with you for the next several months. This March, we will celebrate 10 years of weekly worship services as a church. We had our very first service as a church in January of 2000, or 2008, and we met monthly leading up to Easter of that year. And so we're reaching our 10-year anniversary, and we have seen in the last 10 years some really wonderful things as a church. We have seen God do incredible things. We've made great relationships, and we are so thankful for what God has done in our midst. But if you were a student of the world, you know the world today is different than it was 10 years ago. And every church has to struggle with certain questions. And one of those questions is, how do we be the authentic body of Christ in this time? How do we maintain the orthodox ways of fulfilling the role of the church as given to us in Scripture and yet recognize that methods come and go, but there is a way to be the church in a time and a place, and we have to wrestle with that as the world changes around us. I also believe that the Holy Spirit is, is calling us, moving among us to become deeper and more than we have ever been before. Now, sometimes that's code language for we want to start a church growth program. That is not what what I believe the Holy Spirit is calling us to. What I believe the Holy Spirit is calling us to is not a broadening or a growing in numbers necessarily, but a deepening, a quickening within the faith of us as a faith community. So I'm going to be sharing much of this with you over the next several months, and then I'm going to be asking you to do some pretty unconventional things as we seek God's word and vision for our church moving forward for the next 10 years, I do believe it's going to look at least somewhat, if not radically, different than where we've been so far, while at the same time maintaining our conviction of what Scripture tells us our purpose and our calling as a church is. So we'll be sharing more about that with you. I will tell you that as my, in my own personal journey, part of what I'm going to share with you in this series has been, is born out of a lot of my frustration. Uh, my frustration with the state of the church, with the state of Christianity, and quite honestly, many times with the state of my own life and my own heart. Uh, so this series is much more than just 
I want you to take a bunch of notes and you're going to fill your head with academic knowledge about the Holy Spirit. If that's what you walk away with at the end of these next few weeks, then you will have missed a greater moment of experiencing Christ in your midst. So I hope you will stick with me. There are some basic questions that are driving what I want to share with you today and what I'm going to share with you for the next several weeks. One of those is, why are Christians leaving the church and leaving their faith? Now, if you're on Facebook and you like at least a couple of church uh, pages, you've probably had a list of different articles saying why millennials aren't coming to church or why boomers are whatever this or whatever why people are leaving the church. But one of the driving things for me is why are people, regardless of age, walking away from not only a church, but they're walking away from their faith? Why does that happen? In Scripture, that doesn't happen if a seed is planted and it germinates, it has a strong foundation, and it grows. You will go through different periods within your life, but you will not walk away because you will have experienced something so significant that you cannot do life without it again. There's an alarm going off. So this, that means pay attention. This is important stuff. So this is a test. There will be a test before you're allowed to leave today. No. Second question that is on my heart, are why are some churches growing at a significant pace? Other churches are either stagnant or diminishing. Why is there such a difference? For many, what it means to live the Christian life is about finding the right process. And if we find the right process, and as a church, if we find the right process in order to grow, we will just grow like all these other churches are growing. And yet, as we look deeper into what's happening within the world of church, we, can find, we find that some of the largest churches have some of the, the weakest Christians in them. They're full of people, but they're not growing deeper in their faith. Why is that? Others, completely opposite. Large churches reaching lots of people, that people are changing dramatically in their own lives. Small churches that are growing deeper and their impact within their community continues to grow while others are just declining and dying. Why is that? Now, I'm not going to address all of these things because some of these are kind of system, system issues, but a lot of this has to do with the Holy Spirit. Another question I have is why are some Christians super enthusiastic about their faith while others could just seem to care less. Have you ever wondered that? Maybe you've gone through that, and in your life there are days that you're on fire. You are excited about your faith, and other days you're just, eh, not so much. i got other things on my mind. But we're seeing large swaths of people that even attend church regularly that are not excited about their faith, which I, I, it befuddles me. You, you didn't think I would use that word today, but it befuddles me that people can live a life knowing Christ with the indwelling Holy Spirit in their life and not be excited about what's going on and supernaturally are in the world around them and in their own lives. And that is a question that has been driving me for quite a while. I've been struggling with and praying about over several months and years. Like that, why are some Christians on fire? Why are they sacrificing and giving and serving and feeling like their life is growing, expanding. They are having life-giving experiences. Why do some experience that while others feel that any activity that has to do with their faith just exhausts them? They're just not excited whatsoever. 
Similarly, why do some people live by the book, the Bible, and they are just so enthralled with getting and gaining more out of Scripture and applying it to their lives and seeing God do amazing things around them and others who are so faithful to attend and to give and to serve, and they're not experiencing that. And they don't have a drive to go to God's Word and to know it. All of these are questions that I struggle with. And as we started our church, Years ago, Scott and I, when we first got together and began talking, for those of you who don't know our story, Scott and I were, were uh, part of two different churches, and we were trying to figure out how do we creatively share the gospel with people in a group, and we decided that we had some similar ideas that meant getting outside of our current context, so we needed to come together and start something new in our city. We didn't really know what, how to do that. We just knew we love Jesus, and we want everybody to know about him, and we were burdened that there were so many people that not only didn't know about him, but the system of church was set up in such a way in many places that they were actually resistant to people who don't know Christ coming in and learning and growing in their own faith. We didn't know what to do. We started reading books, and we had a book, and the book literally was written by a, a very successful church planner who told us all the things we were supposed to do, and we did them and some of them worked and some of them didn't. But the thing that caught me is that so many other churches, at the same time we started, they started with the same ideas I thought, with the same book of how do you do this thing and grow like these other churches are growing. And what we found is that many of those didn't make it. They just died. And what was so discouraging to me were that the pastors of those churches who were so on fire for reaching the lost, at the moment that their church did not become the next megachurch, not only did they quit the church, did they kill the church, but they left their faith altogether. And I asked myself, why do so many people want to either go start a church or have absolutely nothing to do with God? And within me, it, it created a tension that I just, I see it spreading throughout our contemporary faith. All of these are not new things. These have been happening since the moment that the church was established at the day of Pentecost. But these are also all things that we are not supposed to be experiencing. And if we have a correct understanding and experience with the Holy Spirit, these things will not happen within our lives. So over the next few weeks, there's a number of things I want to talk to you about. We literally could go for, for months talking about the Holy Spirit. If we were to go through every place in Scripture that talks about the Holy Spirit, it would take us months to get through that. And that is not our goal, and that is not what we're going to do. But there are some basic things that I really want you to understand, and some of you are already there. And so some of the experiential stuff I want to talk to you about, especially today, may be more where your head is, because you already kind of have the basis of what your doctrine of the Holy Spirit is. But for those of you who this is kind of new, and, and if you come from a non-charismatic background, you probably have not heard much about the Holy Spirit. I come from a very reserved denomination. We didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. Whenever there was a hymn that used the Holy Ghost, that hymn was blackballed because, you know, you're talking about the Holy Ghost. That's just not right, you know. And, and there was an, a misunderstanding about the mystery of this Holy Spirit that is so powerful among us and in us that we almost become afraid to even talk about it. But some of the things I want you to get out of this that I want you to understand, but just understanding it will not be enough. You'll understand what I mean by that by the end of today. But some of the things I want you to understand is who is the person of the Holy Spirit? Where does he fit within the Trinity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? 
I want you to understand that. I want you to understand some of the basic functions of the Holy Spirit, which begins with being born again of the Holy Spirit. It it involves the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what becomes exciting as the filling of the Holy Spirit within your life. What we're going to find is that there's an ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It is an undeniable working and ministry of the Holy Spirit within you. And then finally, we're going to talk about what is the mission of the Holy Spirit because all those who walk in step with the Spirit are on a mission. And that mission is clearly defined in Scripture. But that's kind of where I want us to go. Now, we've spent several weeks in the last few months, we've spent several months in the Old Testament. And so I feel it necessary to kind of shake us out of the Old Testament way of thinking because this is very much New Testament way of thinking. In the Old Testament, what we've looked at, especially in the last few months, was was the life of David. And what we find in the Old Testament is that God worked through specific people to do specific things. So you had great leaders like Moses, and then eventually you had somewhat the establishment of the nation of Israel. And so then you had judges that would come in and kind of lead the nation of Israel and following God's instructions and God would speak to them and empower them and they would go out and do these great things. And then we have the, ages of, the age of the kings and the kings were put in place to do the work of God amongst the people. But what we found over and over again, if you really study through that period, is that most of the kings were terrible kings. They didn't follow God. Then we have the age of the prophets. And if you're feeling good and happy about life and you really want a downer, read, read the prophets. The major and the minors, I mean, they will, they will shake you out of your good times really quickly because they're depressing. And then there's a shift in the prophecy. Then you begin to see it moving from judgment to hope as there's the promise of a Messiah that will come and will rescue them from all of these problems that they've had since Adam and Eve. And then we come into the age of Christ and in the age of Christ, and if those of you who are really you know, theological nuts, I'm not, I'm not a proponent of dispensationalism. Dispensationalism says that God changes and works differently in different ages. I don't believe that. I believe God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But he has been working a plan this whole time. But in this time in which Jesus comes on the scene, everything changes. The time of the judges, the times of the kings, the times of the prophets. All of that has come and gone because all of that was on a system that you had to be good enough to be good with God. And if you weren't good enough, you had to go through this incredibly complex sacrificial system to atone for your sin but when jesus comes in he is the atonement for our sin and he changes everything about how we interact with god and how we live our lives and we are no longer a people that just have to try on our own power to either please god or at least not get him get on his bad side which is the way some people still view him today all of that has changed Jesus signified a, radically, a radical departure from the legal system of atonement so that we are now experiencing the atonement through the death, burial, and resur- resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of that happened. I don't want to rehash all, all of the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of salvation. That's not really what our goal is today. What I want to move to is what Jesus said would happen once he leaves Because Jesus said he had to leave the disciples in order for something better to come. This is what, this better thing is what I believe 
many Christians are missing today. He said he had to leave so that the Holy Spirit could come. We read about this in John chapter 16. It says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. This is Jesus saying this. That it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, capital H, talking about a person, the helper that we know as the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He's talking about you, by the way. Not just the disciples. He's talking about you as a follower of Christ. The Holy Spirit will do these things for and to in you. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit, for much of what we understand it, is written about and we learn about it in the New Testament. Much of the work of the Holy Spirit that is talked about is in the New Testament. However, the Holy Spirit is not, just as Jesus was with God from the beginning, the Holy Spirit is with God from the beginning. And the title for our series is called Numa. Numa is the Greek word for spirit. It literally is translated as breath. And so Numa is the breath or the spirit of God. And the reason that we avoid just understanding what this is is because anytime you start talking about things in terms of breath or sometimes he's talked about as a wind this kind of mysterious imagery that we can't just you know, put our foot on and understand and see it, then we tend to kind of ignore it because it's confusing and difficult. But when we do that, we miss the incredible power of the working of the Holy Spirit. But we do see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And so some of the places that you see this, it is wholly different than what we see in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit has a role, but not the same role that we see in the New Testament. One of the things is, we see that the Holy Spirit was active in creation, and it is the Holy Spirit that gave life to Adam and Eve and every other living thing. When God breathed his breath of life into Adam and Eve and all living creatures, that is the same word that would eventually be translated into the Holy Spirit. His Spirit breathed in. And so God, while he is speaking and causing all these things to happen, we read in John that Jesus is going about doing much of the creative work as God dictates what will happen. And when it comes time to give life, it is the Holy Spirit that is breathed into us and gives us life out of these clay bodies. So the Holy Spirit is active in creation. Another place that we see it often in the Old Testament is the giving of special power or special abilities that people have for special tasks. When we read about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, jumping ahead, we talk about the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit within your life. We only see that one time in the Old Testament. We see many places where the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody. 
And when he comes upon them, they do something. The judges have the Holy Spirit coming upon them. One of the only inferences that we see of someone being filled with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was a guy named Bezalel, and he was tasked with building the tabernacle and all the implements of the very first tabernacle that would house God's presence. There was outside of the ability for any person to do that, and so the Holy Spirit came upon Bezalel, and he was empowered to create the tabernacle that God would reside in as they wandered in the desert before the temple was eventually built. That was the Holy Spirit that did that. David talks about another aspect of, and let me, I'm jumping ahead of some scriptures. 2 Samuel 23, this is what David said, the Spirit of the Lord, again, same, same Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. In other words, the Holy Spirit spoke to David, and we saw several of his prophecies as God was speaking through him. Ezekiel 2.2 says, As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. So we see that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is speaking to people, which he continues to do that today if we're inclined to listen. A fourth way that we find the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is that he would begin to be promised. The first time we hear about the Holy Spirit being given to us is not the New Testament, but it is the Old Testament when we begin to hear about a Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, the Holy Spirit will be given to us. So we do hear about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not something that just arrives on the scene when Jesus arrives on the scene. Any more than Jesus was born when he was a baby and he grew up then. Jesus has been around forever just as God the Father and the Holy Spirit. If we believe Scripture to be true, if we believe the Gospel to be true, then we believe these things to be true. And if the Holy Spirit is able to do these things, then are we seeing them in our own lives? Are we seeing these in our own lives. We read about the promise of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to be primarily in Acts today. Acts is written by Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke wasn't actually walking around with all the disciples, but he was going around interviewing all the disciples. He was going around asking everybody, what's happening with this Jesus guy? And so he wrote, and if you'll, you'll look, he, he talks about his first book he wrote, or his first letter to Theophilus, because he wanted him to know all of these things that are happening about this powerful movement of Christ sweeping the area. and he, So he was writing everything he could, and as a studied guy, he, he was able to give detail and he was able to bring together a lot of the acts of the apostles, which is how the name got, how the letter book got the name. We read in chapter 1 of the promise of the Holy Spirit. It says in the first book, O Theophilus, he's talking about his gospel that we call the Gospel of Luke, which was literally written only a few weeks before the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them and after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
So this is that period after he has risen from the dead. He walked out of the tomb. We were talking this morning. Our elders were together talking. And interestingly enough, Easter is on April 1st next year, April Fool's Day, which I thought, wouldn't it be cool to do kind of a tomb shot? April Fool's, Jesus is gone. And that be... No? I thought it was cool. All right, we'll scratch that idea. That was not as good an idea as I thought it was. But... Uh, but this period in which this happens is the time after he has walked out of the tomb and he spends several days with the disciples before he departs. This is one of the times in which Thomas comes in and he's like, hey, it's me. Thomas like, I don't believe it. Let me see your wounds. And then he, you know, Thomas puts his hands in there, which just tells me Thomas is really messed up that he would want to do that. But he demonstrates, I am the risen Christ. And he says, do not leave Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit's coming. Now he talks about two different baptisms here, and this is important for us for today's what I want you to get. He talks about the baptism of John and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now the baptism of John is what we do here. And we fill up the tub of water, we dunk you under, we normally bring you back up in time to get your next breath. That's the baptism of John. It's what John did out in the desert. It's what Jesus submitted himself to John and said, I must be baptized. And then as he said, I want you to go out and share the gospel. And as you do that, I want you to baptize people in my name. This is the baptism of John. But he says, I want you to wait because there's going to be a baptism of the Holy Spirit in addition to your baptism that you've already had. Now, the word baptism, is there's nothing special about the word baptism. It literally means to dunk, you know, to immerse you. And so it's talking about an immersion into water for the baptism of John that signifies I am giving my life to Christ. I am no longer who I was. I'm a new creation. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an immersion into or of the Holy Spirit. It's a wholly different experience, but it is an experience that you will have if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. He says, wait. In chapter 2 it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they stayed in Jerusalem. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the beginning that we see. Now, this is also one of the most difficult passages to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. And there are many religious groups who have said, if you are a true Christian, this will happen to you just like this. And so there are some more charismatic Pentecostal faiths that believe unless you have this kind of experience, you're still not a Christian. And what we find much through the New Testament is that whenever you experience the Holy Spirit, it would be accompanied by something else. Many times it was the gift of tongues, but not every time. And so there are some faiths that believe that if you are baptized by the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit comes and indwells within you and this happens to you, you will speak in tongues. And so if you do not speak in tongues, you are not a true Christian. The problem is, is there are some places that indicate that, but there are many other places that never say that is a part of the Christian experience. 
We'll get to where do tongues fit in all this if you're coming from kind of a traditional experience of there. And I know what we have within our midst here are some of you that do speak in tongues and some of you that don't. We don't exercise it within the worship service because we are firm believers in the biblical representation of tongues. We'll get to that later. The biblical representation of tongues is there is a very different experience between the prayer gifting of worship in the gift of tongues whenever you are with Christ alone. And then there is the gift of tongues. This is what we see the disciples doing, the gift of tongues that allows you to speak in other languages so that the gospel can be shared when there is no other witness in that language to share the gospel. Many times in church services, the way that that happened in the New Testament or those gifts of tongues as you were filled with the Holy Spirit, it was for you to be able to share the gospel with a group of people that had no one else to tell them in their native tongue. That's why we don't do it in our service, but there are some of you that do practice this at home in your own time of prayer and worship, which I do believe the gift of tongues is still exercised today, even though there are some that do not. I don't exercise the gift of tongues within my own life. That's not something that God has given me. It's not something that I am concerned about. If he ever decides that that is an expression of my worship to him, then that's something I will begin to do. But that is not something that he's done in me. So as we get past this verse, I want you to see this is an experiential element of the Holy Spirit that expressed itself in a specific way, which may or may not be your experience, but you will have some kind of experience. Let me keep going. We read about this and some of the tension that you're now feeling after what I have just said has been felt from the very beginning. And so I want to read to you what happens with some new believers, Samaritan believers, when they had an experience of believing that was different from an experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you look, Acts chapter 19, jump ahead a little bit. We read this. It said, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? We're going to come back to that question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Remember the water baptism into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, which is Christianity is a contemporary word. It was, they were described as followers of the way because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So anywhere you see the way, it's talking about those who claim to follow Christ. They, became, or they were speaking ill of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Talk about a ministry. Everybody heard about it. There's a troubling verse in those few verses that I just read. 
it should trouble you if you have not had a discernible experience with the Holy Spirit. And it is the simple question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, this is an experiential question. If I asked you, when you walked in today, did somebody hit you in the face with a pie? You should know whether that happened or not, right? When you walked in the door today, did somebody hand you a cup of coffee? You should know whether that did or did not happen. That's not a figurative question like, you know, I, don't, I, no, I didn't have a coffee in my hand, but I felt the warmth when I walked in the room as if someone was embracing me and handing me a cup of coffee, even though no one did. You know, we often talk about God and the Holy Spirit just that way when the Scripture says, no, no, if somebody handed you a cup of coffee, it would be in your hand right now. It's an experiential question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit, when you believe. Now, the reason that's an uncomfortable verse is because that is a question you and I also have to answer. If I were to walk up to you today, if I were to bring you on stage and I were to hand you a microphone and said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What would you say? How would you answer I was at home, I was up in the attic, and this fire came through the window and lit on my head like tongues of fire, and I started speaking in tongues and prophesying. It was amazing. I I guarantee not a one of you is going to come up and say that, and it actually have happened. Because Pentecost happened on Pentecost for a reason. But if someone were to walk up to you and ask you that, did you receive the Holy Spirit? You probably would look at them and go, all right, Have you been smoking something? (laughs) Are you on something? It's time. Let's go get a cup of coffee. You know, that's weird. That's weird. We don't ask that. I was growing up in the church. We went through all kinds of evangelism plans. We'd knock on the door and we'd walk up and we would say, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? It was great for building new friendships. (laughs) But imagine if we walked up and we said, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? More doors would have been slammed in our faces. It's a crazy question. It's one that we're not used to in the contemporary modern church today, but it is still the prevailing question for those who claim to follow Christ. And this is one of the reasons that I believe that we have large churches who are dead, small churches who are dying, and churches in between who are thriving because they, have, they know the answer See, the church is not about a service, it's not about an event, it's not about a program, it's not about childcare. it's not about cool music, it's not about worshipful music. The church is about a people who have been touched by the message of Christ and are filled and are compelled to live out their lives in step with the Holy Spirit. That is what the church is. All of this other stuff pales in comparison to that calling. We come together because Scripture tells us we need to come together as a body. But coming together as a body does not mean that we just sit in proximity to each other, but that we are experiencing the same working of the same God in each of us through the same Holy Spirit. This question points to a significant, memorable experience of receiving the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to tell you that if you can't point to that, that you haven't had it. And I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. But this is a memorable experience in their minds. 
you should know the answer to this. And they did. They said, no, we, we didn't. We didn't even know what the Holy Spirit is, which is one of the problems with the church not teaching the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. And so in this story, Paul comes up and says, okay, well, let me tell you about it. And then they get baptized, lays hands on them. Boom, the Holy Spirit comes. And now this thing that they had believed becomes so much more, so much more powerful. So what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? I want to back up to Acts chapter 8 because Acts is where we learn so much about this. Acts chapter 8, similar scenario, ministry to the Samaritans. So this is with Philip. Verse uh, verse 5 of chapter 8 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed so that there was much joy in that city. A natural expression of seeing the power of God and hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That brings joy in those who receive that news. Verse 9, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Isn't that all of our temptations? We want to all be somebody great, find our thing to make other people celebrate us. Verse 10 says, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. They had believed. They were filled with joy. They had responded to the gospel, but they went to pray with them so that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Different experience. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to this. These are two instances of a two-part process that is not repeated in every place in the New Testament. This is not prescriptive of what I'm trying to get you to believe, that you have a two-step process. It happens here. And what many have believed from from that moment to today is this was a symbolic receiving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was withheld from them because of the great divide between Jews and Samaritans. And because the gospel was to unite all people, there's no longer slave or free, Jew or Gentile, or Samaritan or Jew. We're all just one people before God. This was a symbolic coming together of the church saying we are all one church, even if you are not one of us or haven't been. We are one church. And so they come and they impart the Holy Spirit to them. Can it happen this way today? Yes, it can happen this way today, but it's not as likely, because this was, we were talking about the formation of the church and bringing cultures together. That's what's happening at this time. 
Verse 18, this is where the story gets a little kind of fun. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, now remember, this is the magician who's been performing card tricks. He's called himself great, and everybody pays attention to him. At least they used to. They don't know why they used to. So now he's kind of looking for his edge again. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone to whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. In in other words, that's a cool trick. You know, I, I, I had all kinds of magic tricks, so people loved me for it. But, I mean, that is far beyond anything I ever did. Can I, can I buy that ability? I could retain my standing again. If I can just give power like that, this was something they could see. This was a power that was noticeable. Something changed in them. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. In other words, you just want to be popular again. That's all you want. You want the glory. And what we find, the greatest judgment that is leveled against people is when we want the glory instead of giving it to God. Over and over again, many different ways of doing that, but we want to be glorified over God. That was a very original sin. That was the war in heaven that led to the splitting of the angels, and we have Lucifer fighting against God. It was because they wanted God's glory, and he does not give it to anyone else. It is God's alone. I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. I've just seen an incredible thing, and you just said some really mean things to me. I really don't want that to happen. But I've seen such power that I know it could. Verse 25, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Which, preview, is the mission of the Holy Spirit. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you are propelled to take it to others. You are compelled to take it to others. Now what we see in these in the belief of these Samaritans, I do believe we see this very much in today's world. But we do believe that even though they had not received the Holy Spirit at this time, they did truly believe the gospel. Some of the things we see in verse 8, that there was much joy because they had heard the gospel. It had an emotional impact on them. Verse 12, it says that they believed Philip and the words that he was saying. Now, it's an important distinction that they believed what he was saying versus just believing Philip. Because it is possible that a communicator can be so infatuating a communicator really can speak like honey, and you can just want to listen to them and be around them. You all don't know what that's like, but there are people that are like that. And you can believe them and want to follow them, not necessarily the good news or the message that they're giving. 
It's one of the reasons that Jesus has said that he wasn't a really handsome guy. He was not somebody you really wanted to be with because the message was what was important, not the charisma of the messenger. Some of the greatest revivals in history were begun by men who were terrible speakers. It was the message, not the messenger. And so we see that they believed the message. It wasn't that Philip was so good at what he did that he had a really great show that he was able to present the gospel in a way that was really cool and fun and exciting. But they believed the good news of the gospel, that we are sinners, that we need to repent, that Jesus came, he gave his life on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, and he is giving the Holy Spirit to those who believe and follow. We have an element of belief in them, but they do not yet have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And I, I hope that at this point, I haven't lost you because I know I'm going at a kind of a feverish pace up here. But I hope at this point, the question burning in your mind is, am I empowered by the Holy Spirit? Is it possible that I believe, but I've not yet received the Holy Spirit? So when you read verses like this, that is a natural conclusion that you come to. And so as we go through this, one of the things I want you to understand, and this is so crucial in today's church because we have forgotten this. It is so crucial that belief does not always equate the filling of the Holy Spirit. Just because you believe doesn't mean jack. And the problem that I have with the church today is that we are about getting people to believe, not experiencing or walking with Christ. You can believe and yet not know Christ. Did you know that? You can believe He's real. You can believe He's God. You can believe He walked the earth. You can believe He died on the cross. You can believe He rose from the dead. You can believe He's seated at the right hand of the Father. You can believe He's coming back again. You can believe there's going to be a judge. You can believe all that stuff. And it'd be nothing more than information that resides with all the other information that's in your head. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. In other words, the only people who know Christ have the Holy Spirit. That's why this doctrine is so crucial. It's not about information, interesting things about God, things I can pull out at a dinner party sometime. Did you know this about the Holy Spirit? That is not the purpose of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The purpose is the power indwelling nature of the Spirit within your life. And he goes so far as to say, just because you believe doesn't mean anything. When we look at Simon, Simon, he believes also, he wants to buy the Holy Spirit so he can give it out for his own fame. He believes. But Peter and John say, hey, you, you are sick inside. You're not repentant. There's nothing in you that wants the gospel. You just want the power and the glory. And so you will be judged harshly. For me, I believe this is our modern it is the problem of our modern evangelical age. Evangelicals are sick right now. We are sick. Let's be honest. Our sickness is not that we're going out doing terrible things in the world necessarily. Our sickness is as we are trying to sell the gospel in a way that builds our churches without empowering 
those people to actually experience Christ through the Holy Spirit. And here's why. This is one of the things we learned early on when we started Journey, is a lot of the processes that we try to do, because that's the way you were supposed to do a healthy, growing, life-giving church, we learned that those were actually the exact same things that you do if you want to grow a profitable business that has nothing to do with Christ. And there's a very great lure for glory. Of the many churches that started with we do, at least half of those churches, all of them, are no longer around. At least half of the pastors of those churches no longer attend the church because I, I know most of them. And I have to ask myself, how can you be so driven to leave your career and leave your job and to start a faith community to, to reach out to others and when it fails, you don't even want to have anything to do with Christ? How is that possible? It is possible. And it happens and every one of us, even if we're not a pastor, every one of us, it is possible for that to happen to us. There's something significant whenever we move beyond simple belief. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So you're at least, if you believe, at the on par with demons. So good for you, good for me. Belief is on par with Lucifer and demons. Yay, church. So there's got to be something more than just belief. And I believe one of the reasons that Christians get discouraged and give up is not because they had bad intent going in, but it is they never understood what the Holy Spirit was supposed to do in their lives, and they never experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and so doing the activity that your belief dictates is exhausting without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so people walk away. I gotta go to church again? Come on, I gotta read my Bible every day? I mean, come on. I mean, how long do I have to pray? You know, if you come to me for marital counseling and you say, how many times do I have to talk to my wife? Then we're in trouble, all right? But that's the way many of us approach our relationship with Christ. I, I prayed for 30 seconds today. I mean, I was about to be hit by a train. It was so that I wouldn't die, but I did pray. significant what the Holy Spirit wants to do within us. The truth is, and this is why we stopped trying to keep up with all the greatest innovations and everything church growth related, is because we realize you cannot create an experience that duplicates the Holy Spirit. And the harder we try, the more we push the Holy Spirit out of the room. There is something that has to be significant in our own crying out for the Spirit to fill us. All right, I've got three pages left to go, and I've got two minutes. What you will find when we do our, our series, our doctrine series like this, is I may not get through an entire sermon. We'll pick it up next week whenever I'm out of time because I've got so much I can cover, and a lot of this I just want you to get. But I do want you to see these next few things. Just to kind of wrap up all of this, receiving the Holy Spirit is a memorable and experiential event. Now, I can tell you when this happened for me. Now, I could not have explained that this is what was happening until I better understood all of this. But when I was a young boy, about eight years old, I felt that I needed to ask Christ to be my Savior. 
I was baptized. I went forward in the church. And, I mean, that was it. Over the next eight years, my faith really had very little impact on the way I lived my life. The reason I went forward is because I had grown up in 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 a home that Christ was evident in my parents' lives. And so I knew when the Spirit was upon a group of people I could feel. I couldn't have told you that's what I was experiencing because I didn't understand it when I was eight years old, but I could feel it. Something was there. And I, at eight years old, I realized I'm missing something that they have. And, and so that was when I said, God, I, I believe this is real. But it was eight years later that I got caught up in social status in high school and trying to be with the right cool kids and doing the things that got you noticed from the pretty girls and all that stuff, I began to notice that as I study my Bible, I'm not really following any of this stuff. It was in that moment that I I had a crisis because I do believe that there is an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, even for these Samaritan believers, that is different from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. An indwelling of the Holy Spirit says you are mine. I'm with you. But a baptism of the Holy Spirit is when you allow the Holy Spirit to clothe you, to indwell you, that you walk in step with the Spirit. For me, that experience was camp. I was 15 years old, and I was at a crisis of my faith because I could no longer match what I believed with how I wanted to live. And it created a crisis in me that I believe the Holy Spirit caused a great strife that I finally said, I cannot be two different people. I choose Christ. And that is the moment that as I walked down the street, now this is my experience, not everyone's. As I walked down the street, it was as if Christ was walking right beside me. There was just an overwhelming joy that came into me. A change as I... The next morning, we got in our van to leave, and my youth minister looked over at me, and he said, something happened to you, didn't it? I said, yeah. I couldn't explain what. I couldn't explain how. I had a little book that told me what my next path of being a Christian, and it was like a little stair step, and the last step was I had to share my faith. I was like, I'm way, I'm nowhere close to that. I don't want to do any of that stuff. But there was something that changed. There was an experience. I couldn't have described it to you. I couldn't have given you doctrinal bullet points of what was happening in my life, but I could feel something was different. And when you come to the realization that this is real, the Holy Spirit is real. He is powerful. He wants to do something in me. When you come to that experience, it is overwhelming. And while yours may look different from anyone else's, you can point to a moment that said, that is when things changed for me. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is a memorable, it is an experiential event everywhere that we see it in the book of Acts. Every time someone receives the Holy Spirit, it's memorable and experiential. We read about at Pentecost, they were speaking in tongues, they were praising the works of God, and they were able to go out and witness in incredible ways. You could see it, people saw it, they even looked at them and said, how are these dumb Galileans able to do this stuff? What's empowering them? People could see something was different in them. In Samaria, we see it over and over. Simon saw it, and Simon said, I want to buy it. How do I do this? 
In Caesarea, at the house of Cornelius, they were speaking in tongues. In Ephesus, the, what we read about Paul going into the disciples in the, there, those were, those were the disciples of John that had not yet heard about the Holy Spirit. And when he laid hands on them, that is when they experienced the Holy Spirit within them. They began speaking in tongues. When Saul had his conversion, his experience with power and boldness, and he went out and he was changed. His, he lost his eyesight. And he, when he went and he heard and he understood, he was changed. And everyone noticed. Everyone was still scared of him. But it was something you could see. We read also in Acts chapter 5, and I think this is what I'm going to end with today. Acts 5.32 is that God gave the Holy Spirit to everyone who was obeying him. This is, this is ooh, so crucial. This is good stuff if you don't leave with anything else today. Acts 5.32 says, And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. See, there is a crisis coming within the church where we have to decide, are we, do we, are we molding the church to be what we want for us? Or are we changing our lives to be what the Holy Spirit is calling us to be as a church? There's a difference. We have to be at that place where we're willing to say, I'm ready to obey Wherever the Spirit is, there's obedience to God and what He teaches us. Everywhere. There is no place for anyone who is filled with the Holy Spirit who disobeys God. It's not found anywhere. If you're sitting here today saying, I cannot, I believe, but I cannot think of an experience like that. Are you obeying the statutes of our God? As I've said before, belief alone is not the mark of a Christian. The mark of a Christian is the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. That is the true mark of a Christian. When we read passages that says, people will look at you and they will know you are my disciples by your love for each other. That's because that's a supernatural love. Because some of you guys are hard to love, and so am I. And if you can love me and I can love you, that's supernatural and they notice it. Because the Holy Spirit is active in us. He's allowing us to do things we can't normally do. When you receive the Holy Spirit, it is memorable and it is experiential. Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Here's, what I want, here, here, here's how I want to end. Because these kinds of sermons, you know, they can, some of you are going, Yeah, preach it, man, let's stay here for two more hours. And some of you are thinking, I wish I hadn't come today. <laughs> I don't know what to make of all this. Let me say this. You need to come back every week of this series. Because if this is all you get, if this is all you get, this is confusing. There's much more that I want to share with you. But if you're sitting here today and you can point to that experience, and if I were to walk up to you and say, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You would say, yes. Let me tell you what happened. And some of you are dedicated to your faith and you love Jesus and you believe and you study and you serve and you give and you, you are just, you have been changed. But you can't point to that experience. Let me just say this. I do not want you to walk out of here and go, I'm not a Christian. I'm a bad Christian. 
Because quite honestly, when I, when I you know, study this kind of stuff, I'm like, God, I'm a bad. Every time I study something about being a Christian, I say, God, I'm a bad Christian. <laughs> I'm just a bad. I, I can't preach this. I mean, I can't even live this for crying out loud. I don't want you walking out of here saying, if you can't point to this experience, saying, I'm a bad Christian. There are, there are different reasons why maybe you can't point to this experience, and they're not all that you haven't been filled by the Holy Spirit. It is very possible that this is new material. You don't even know about this. Similar to the Samaritan Jews, we don't even know about this. We, we, we don't know how to define or quantify or even point to an experience because we don't even know about any of this stuff. And it may be that you are learning and growing and this new experience is going to awaken something within you that is already there, but you do not yet comprehend. It is possible one of the things I love about reading in the New Testament is that God never works the same way every time. God works in so many different mysterious ways. That's one of the reasons we talk about the Holy Spirit as being a mystery. If he wasn't a mystery, we would, I would hand you a handout and say, go here, go absorb this, and you got all you need. But he's a mystery. He's a breath. He's a wind that goes here and there. He's that quiet, still voice that if we're not quiet and still and listening, we'll miss. It may be that you just need to look back and say, you know what, I never could quantify it because I never understood it, but now I see what God has been doing in me. I see what has caused that. I see why my drive for my, my heart has moved from this thing that was not honoring God, and I couldn't really understand it, but I no, I no longer want to move in that direction. And you understand, this is the Holy Spirit. This is what I haven't been able to put my finger on. But I would be remiss if I didn't say it is possible that you have come to a moment of belief, but not a moment of submission. You may believe all the right stuff, but you've never submitted your heart to Him. Where you have said, you are the pearl of great price. You are the thing above all things that should be glorified and worshipped. I, I, I repent of myself and my search for self-glory. I, I, I give my heart to you. Fill me. For some of you, like these Samaritan Jews, you may have had a, a true moment of, of conversion, of, of repentance and receiving of the gospel, and there's just been a waiting time for you. Maybe you just need to pray and say, God, help me to experience your spirit. But today may be a day for you to simply say, you know what? The Spirit doesn't reside in anyone who doesn't obey. And we just need to take ownership and say, I've not been interested in obeying the statutes of God, and, and so the Holy Spirit's not in me. Take that step. I'm not going to judge you for that. There's different reasons people come to that place. It could be anything from no one ever taught you. It could be that you just heard that belief was all you ever had to do. But I'm telling you, if you are feeling empty inside and you are a follower of Christ, there is something not right in your relationship with Christ because the Holy Spirit wants to fill you. When we experience the Holy Spirit, our lives are changed forever. Now, I do want you to come back because, you know, one of the things we do have to address is that, you know, the Holy Spirit, just because you receive the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that you are now without sin. Just because you now have the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that you ever don't do anything wrong or do anything you need to ask forgiveness for. 
there is a misunderstanding that now I have the Holy Spirit, and so now I am holy. Deal with it. That is not the way it works. And so I hope that you'll come back. We'll put this on our, our website, on the podcast, because I know this is a ton of material I'm throwing at you. I may even, th- I may even throw my notes out there if you just want my notes, to, because I know this is a lot of stuff. But I, I just want you to hear, hear from me that I believe this is the crucial place the church has to deal with today if we are going to continue to take the gospel into the world. We have to, we have to get this. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you for the incredible working of your love and your grace in our lives, that you have not waited for us to perfect ourselves or to be good enough to receive your spirit, but instead you, you know we are incapable on our own and you have chosen to empower us. You have chosen to give us the free gift of your spirit into our lives if we will simply bow and receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we will repent of our sins and obey your teachings. Lord, I pray that you would descend upon us in this moment of worship. I pray for those in this room and, and they are struggling because they cannot point to a moment they knew their life was changed. I pray that they would experience the Holy Spirit in this moment. They would not walk out of here as believers only without any power. I pray that you would open our minds and our understandings coming from different backgrounds so that we would be able to read your word and we would be able to understand it. That is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I I pray that we will be able to understand this and, and live in joy at this reality. Father, I pray that you would come clothe us, indwell us, change us, empower us, for your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.